Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I kept the recorder going with Torsten, and we took off on a more intellectual discussion after I thank the sponsors, Top Spinini Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. You may have to Google some of the terms. You're t- the PhD statistician is talking to a doctor of theoretical nuclear physics, but we got into risk management. So hope you enjoy and uh, you may be stretched by this. And here's Torsten. I have a question for you, and it's higher math. If a card is 10 times more difficult to find, in other mm-hmm. words, we have a serial numbered card, serial numbered to say 100. Then we have another card that is serial numbered, the same card, except it's serial numbered to 1,000. Mm-hmm. So there's 10 times as many of the number to 1,000 as there is the number to 100 card. Some people have asked, well, why is that card not 10 times as valuable? I mentioned it's more like a logarithmic scale. Yes, that is true. Glaze over and say, you've lost me. But you understand what I'm saying. That's funny that you mentioned it because recently I plotted the stated odds to the value, to the Beckett value. I didn't really find a functional dependency, but if there was one, it would be logarithmic, not linear. It's not linear. I, I... Assumed it might be logarithmic, not really, but maybe this would be the closest thing to. It doesn't have to be an exact relationship, but what I'm mm. pointing out, I think it's helpful in understanding that when something is twice as scarce, it's not twice as valuable necessarily. It's less than that. The mm. amount that it's less logarithmic in general shows a curve that is not linear. The other reason I'm bringing this up is for people in my family who said that calculus is not useful. In reality, calculus is about the rate of change. And I'm sure you had to take calculus for your (laughs) physics. Most of the understanding of physics of calculus and vice versa comes from things in the physical world where there's the rate of change and the relationships, again, that are complicated, that are complex. Logarithmic and and algebra, same thing. People say, why am I taking this stuff? I'm never going to use it. It's not that you use it as much as just the understanding that the relationship between scarcity and value is not linear. Just to know that is helpful, that it's less. And so if it was purely logarithmic, then the 10 to 1 would be more, log base 10 would be like from 10 to 100 is 2. Mm-hmm. 10 to the second power is 100. So, I mean, again, people can go do their own Khan Academy thing on logs. Something that's 10 times as tough is generally more than twice as uh, valuable. But sometimes that's all it is. You don't have to take a course in it just to understand that there's not a linear relationship. When I was a teacher... And teaching probability statistics in college, my secret was I just used these kinds of sports examples, not so much sports cards, but sports examples to teach some of the statistics and uh, probability uh, concepts. One thing that, that comes to mind is uh, percentage, calculation of percentages. I know that in Germany, we learned that at seventh grade, but nobody really gets it. But when you have an understanding or an application of it's five free throws out of 10 is 50%. Well, eight free throws out of 10 is 80%. Then you, you have an application and then you understand it better. If they made five out of 10, what's the probability that they're going to make the next one? There's all kinds of studies that have been done that show that the there's no such thing as like a streak, that you're on a hot streak. If you <laughs> generally make five out of 10, then you made the last one. Does that mean you're more likely to make the next one? No, you're probably still 50-50. You talked about practicing restraint, patience, being able mm. to wait. And I just think the ordering cards or buying cards overseas, it, it, you have to be very patient. Right now, people are trying to be patient 
to get their cards graded and they're waiting a long time. So how did you deal with that? I guess it was just the expectation. You just have to wait. There was a time in Germany, you couldn't find any basketball cards. No, no stores had them anymore because they were not hot anymore. Yeah. Then eBay came along. You, you found one or two cards that you liked on, on German eBay, but to shop in, in, the, in the US uh, was hard because very few sellers would ship to Germany back in the days, beginning of the 21st century. You have to look hours and hours until you find a card that you wanted and that was priced fairly and that was shipped to Germany. It was hard endeavor to do back in the days. Your degree is in theoretical nuclear physics. My question to you is the rise of these vaults and fractional ownership and the aspect of having the card but not being able to touch it. Was that appealing to you in Germany if someone said, I'm going to be your United States repository, your vault, you buy the cards, we'll just ship them here and we could eventually ship them to you. So to what extent do you want to have your cards in your albums or whatever, right? That is correct. Of course, I use ComC and, and also use ship my cards just yeah. to, to save on shipping, but I, I need my cards. I can't imagine having something like fractional ownership of a card. That doesn't it's a different to kind me. of collecting. It's a different kind of collecting. Mm. These uh, digital cards, I could see your collection, or you can see some of my collection right now, because you can see the, the digital representation of it. I think the people that are just selling digital cards or digital video clips that have no tangible expression, I'm wondering how much that can catch on. It's a different kind of customer. I think, yeah, because we are collectors, and for us, I think... The physical card is important. Maybe if, if you're used to just stock trading, then you could also do a digital card trading. That would be the same thing maybe, but this is not for me. We're getting philosophical here, but we're allowed to do that because we have PhDs. <laughs> if you're a hobbyist, it's mainly about the enjoyment in sharing and showing and having. And uh, if you're in it for an investment, then you think that's not important to me, whether it's digital or fractional or virtual or actual. The main determinant is, can I make money? Can I sell this for more than I bought it for? If you're really a true collector, then if you don't sell or not able to sell something, you're not that upset because you still have it. Mm -hmm. If your shack cards became worth twice as much or half as much, I don't think that's going to affect your behavior. Yes. In, in fact, it, it's even that I'm disappointed when the prices are too high because I'm more reluctant to buy new cards because I never plan on selling anyway. So it's really anti investing, so to speak. I agree, but I do understand there are different people that have different philosophies. One of the things that a PhD is, uh, the PH is for philosophy. You're a doctor of philosophy, and it seems like, how could you be a doctor of the philosophy of theoretical nuclear physics? Philosophy means the love of knowledge, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. Actually, in Germany, you are not a PhD. So I am a doctor of natural science. We don't have a PhD degree okay. here. Okay. So, but anyway, yes. for the, for, yes. so it doesn't apply as much. But I'm just saying, when people would ask me, what's the philosophy of it? When you get a PhD in America and the other places where that's granted, you're learning the yes. philosophy of the field. And this probably be true of your field as well. You have to know a lot. But as you get this terminal degree, you understand, but there's so much more I don't know. Mm. You understand what you don't know. And you understand that this field is so big that you're going to have to be a lifelong learner. That's why it's a PhD here that you understand the philosophy of the field 
in a way that you know what you know and what you don't know. And you know enough that they're going to give you the degree and, and, and say you're certified to do that. But again, theoretical nuclear physics, Torsten, how many years did you have to go to school to do that? You have 10 semesters of just standard physics until you get your diploma. And then how long it takes? It took me three years, three more years for my PhD thesis. It's different than in the US. You don't have to take any courses. You just do a thesis. Yeah. Then in the end, you will have an exam, of course, an oral exam where you defend your thesis and also exam about the field of physics in general. And you have four or five professors. But you don't have to do courses like at the usual studies beforehand. The courses were important for showing that you understood and preparing you for your dissertation, which then, yes, there was an exam and there was an oral defense where you're in front of your committee and people in the department. <laughs> They're not trying to make it easy on you. In fact, one of them was trying to make it very tough on me. They just want to know that you're tough. But our written exam was seven problems, seven days, open book. Cheating would have been asking another person But you couldn't read anything you wanted to read. You couldn't go get somebody to work it out for you because you had to be able to defend your work. I usually like to end these episodes on a positive note. I'm trying to figure out how this is a positive note other than things ended up okay for me. But <laughs> I later found out that each of the seven problems was put in by one of seven professors in my department for the PhD candidates of that year. And uh, two of the guys gave unsolvable problems for us, the several PhD candidates, to solve the problems that they were working on that they couldn't solve. Now I'm looking back and I'm thinking, that sure didn't seem fair at the time that they were giving no, us small problems because you had 168 hours. You had from no. noon on Friday to noon the next Friday, something like that. You had these seven problems. And, and if you didn't solve them, you had to show your work to show that you had PhD level understanding of the problem. They told us to solve all the problems and two of them were unsolvable. I hope that's it for you in your theoretical uh, nuclear physics, but uh, statistics was uh, a great choice for me. Any regrets for the, the career that you took? Are, are you very fulfilled in doing your theoretical nuclear physics? Actually, I don't work at nuclear physics anymore, but uh, that's usual for a nuclear physicist who, who doesn't become a professor. I, I'm a risk controller now. Why don't you apply some risk control to the sports card market? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good idea. I don't want there to be short selling in sports cars. People, I don't want people to be betting against the market, but that in effect is a form of risk control, that you have a market that has people understanding that there's a balance, that maybe more people are bullish, but if you're bearish, if you're thinking things are going to go down, if you want to hedge, I don't think people are thinking that way. They're just thinking this is going to continue to go up. Like I said, I don't want to encourage shorting, but there's no risk management. It's almost like the portfolio managers in the investment world are saying, this is going to be that 10% of a portfolio that we're going to put into alternative assets that might be like Bitcoin or might be like some other new technologies. We understand we could lose everything, but we also could make a lot. I, I think that's the way they're looking at it, but not everybody talks that way. Some of them say this is an investment like the stock market. It's really not like the stock market. It's more speculative. We're not dealing with earnings. It's not yeah, a, it's completely speculative. But it's uncorrelated with the market. So in that sense, it's a hedge, but it needs to be hedged itself. Fortunately or unfortunately, I know a lot of people that a lot of their paper net worth is in sports cards. Diversifying would be a, a risk management as well. I used to be liquidity risk manager at a bank, but currently I'm working at a local energy supplier, yeah. mostly market and credit risk. A head of household, if, if too much of their net worth, and they're not even thinking about some <laughs> of the things you're talking about for themselves, for their family, They, they could get caught upside down in a down market. In Germany, that's not a big issue because we have very few yeah. collectors. But 
I guess in the U.S., this can be a big problem. I know a lot of people that that most of their net worth is in cards. It didn't start out that way, but in the last couple of years, if you own some basketball cards, they have collections that are worth more than their house. And if it is, then they have to think, wait a minute, what do I do now? And Because it's a paper valuation. Like you were saying, liquidity is strong right now, but it might not be. Actually, I don't know. I see the prices the last couple of months. I guess there's some manipulation going on. Crazy. It's crazy. On the logarithmic scale that we were talking about, it's, it's against, not against science, but it's against what we said, is mm. that the more scarce something is, the more it has increased. So it's the opposite of logarithmic almost. Example, there's a thousand made of something. And so that's that's half as expensive as something they made a hundred. Okay. Mm. Then you go that same card, a version that's only 10 copies. That might be 10 times as expensive, okay, mm. which is not sustainable. And if you had a no. one of one of that same card, would that be another 10 times more? Again, I don't think those are sustainable. I think it is going to gravitate toward more of a logarithmic scale. And same thing with the grading, that the nine, as opposed to a 10, you know, seismic earthquakes, Richter scale. The Richter scale is a logarithmic scale. So yeah. an 8.0 earthquake is 10 times as powerful as a 7.0. It's moving that way in grading, but a PSA 10 it's not 10 times more valuable than a PSA 9. But uh, the, the problem is the more cards get created, the, the less scarce they become. It's dilution. And if you yeah. were looking at that as you would in your day job, you would say, I need to be careful about this. <laughs> yes. I, I don't understand it, honestly, what is happening. And th- there was a Kobe card, a rookie flair yeah. a showcase, row zero. It, it, it went 10 times the price within a month or so. This, this is crazy. I'm concerned because it's too hot. And it, yeah. Manipulation as well as bubbles, historical, it's when you get away from a rational basis, then you're in that territory where that could happen. I don't want to be telling people, oh, sell everything you have, but I'm saying be cautious because Mm. the conditions are ripe for a a big adjustment when they're going up so quickly. Yeah. For for me, this is just a hobby. I'm not into the investing thing, not at all. So it's just fun and it should not have anything to do with risk for me. That's just my model. If all your Shaq cards went up by 1,000%, if they all were 10 times as valuable, that would be interesting. Then you would Mm -hmm. have to question that the card that was $100 now is $1,000. And then you'd think, well, how badly do I want this card? Something else you could do with the money.